Nehemiah 9.38. We are going to be reading this morning an account of God's people renewing covenant with God. Covenant renewal is the title of this message. And it's the third in a three-part mini-series in the book of Nehemiah of what it means for God to rebuild his people. What does it mean for God to rebuild his people? We learned two weeks ago in Nehemiah 8 that the first step of God rebuilding his people is for God's people to come under God's word. So they spent all day reading the word of God and rejoicing and crying and and realizing, oh my, God's word constitute God's people. God's word is over God's people. And God's word, which we had ignored for years, is now convicting us. It's convicting us. So step one of God rebuilding his people is he brings conviction by his word. May that be true of us, friends, every day of our lives. Step two, last week, Step two in rebuilding, God rebuilding his people, is that when the conviction comes from the word of God, then God's people confess. And we preached, Corey preached through chapter nine, this beautiful prayer of confession to God. When God begins to form a people and rebuild a people, he does it with his law word, through his covenantal word, and then people respond to the word in conviction, and they respond in confession. Friends, this should be a daily thing for us. God's word is always speaking to us. It's always forming us. It's always convicting us. And we're always confessing. Yes, confessing firstly the greatness of God, the mercy of God, the kindness of God, the patience of God. But then our sin as it becomes evident through his word. And now today, step three in God rebuilding his people is covenant renewal. Conviction of sin under the word. Confession of sin under the word. And now, the bridge here, repentance. And what does repentance look like? It looks like covenant renewal. Look at verse 38 of Nehemiah 9. I'm going to be reading through chapter 10, verse 29. Nehemiah 9, 38, please. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Now, in chapter 10, verses 1 to 27, you find all the names of their princes and of their Levites and of their priests. Let's move now to verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, 
and his rules and his statutes. Father God, I need your help. I am weak. I have stammering lips. I have a heart that is limited in its ability to understand a mind. Oh God, would you bless your people with your word this morning. I pray for an anointing by your spirit to teach that your word would speak, you would speak, oh God, through these stammering lips. And would you open the ears of everyone here to hear it? Not just to hear it, but by your grace, by your spirit, to do it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This book of Nehemiah is about God rebuilding his broken people to declare his blessed message of salvation to the world. Friends, we are his broken people, and he is rebuilding us to declare his glorious message of salvation to our world. These people, these people had been disobedient to God. They were, they were estranged from God. They were entangled with the world. And they were neglecting God's house. And God came to rebuild them. And many of us may find ourselves similarly disobedient to God's word. Feeling estranged or distant from God. Entangled with the world in ways we should not be. And neglecting God's house. Here's the good news on the front end. Here's the good news of God's grace. That God comes to his people. A people who are under God's covenant mercy. And a people who observe God's covenant obligation. I want you to see that for a second. Look at verse 9. Excuse me. Chapter 9, verse 38 again. This idea of people under God's covenant mercy. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. So they're under God's covenant mercy. And they are to observe God's covenant obligations. Skip down to verse 29 of chapter 10. The second part of the verse. 29b. To walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and statutes. So, if you were to unite chapter 9, verse 38, with chapter 10, verse 29, it would sound something like this. Because of all this, we made a firm covenant in writing to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. As we said before, step one of rebuilding is to come under the conviction of God's word. He forms his people with his word. Step two of rebuilding, God rebuilding his people, is to confess. And part of that confession is repentance. And now, repentance. What does repentance look like? Here, now, we're going to... See what repentance looks like. It looks like covenant renewal. It looks like covenant renewal. In our text this morning, God is renewing covenant 
with his disobedient people. That's what he's doing. And he's doing it in a way that is so gracious. He's doing it in a way that they don't deserve. Now, it might help you to try to understand this term covenant. Because this passage is definitely about covenant and covenant renewal. We're not as conversant with that as a Jew would have been at the time of Nehemiah. Somewhere around 443 BC is when this was written. Here's what covenant is. Covenant is kind of like a treaty. Think of it that way, a treaty. So it's a treaty between two entities. But the covenant that is being renewed here is a very unique kind of a treaty. It's a treaty that was found in the Middle East at that time. And it was really a treaty, not between two equal parties, but it was a treaty between a sovereign king and his vassal or servants. So two unequal people. There's a treaty being formed. But because the sovereign king doesn't need the vassal servant, it's solely a treaty from his grace, from his goodness. And and this treaty has first a history. It's got a fancy name. It's called a preamble. It just just kind of describes the situation. You know, holy God, unholy man, I'm going to unilaterally make a treaty, a covenant with you out of my sovereign grace. Okay? Then it has stipulations. It has stipulations. This covenant that they're renewing here is the, remember it says the covenant of Moses. So let's think about the stipulations of the covenant of Moses. I think all of us are aware of at least 10 of them. That's right. The Ten Commandments. Now there are more. And we need to study and understand what they meant. But you understand, the stipulations are there. God says, I'm going to unilaterally do something if you will do something. That's a covenant. That's a treaty. As a matter of fact, this covenant, this treaty that, was, that they're renewing right now in 433 B.C. was first, was first enacted in 1433 B.C. Now, I don't have the exact dates, but roughly. So about a thousand years earlier, God says, I'm choosing this people, and I'm going to constitute this people under my word. So bear with me for a moment. I know this is history, but it's good Bible. So at a place called Mount Sinai, after delivering his people from Egypt and Pharaoh through a sea, the Red Sea, and a cloud followed them, all symbols of New Testament realities of baptism and the Holy Spirit, Pharaoh being a symbol of Satan, delivering his people, he then constitutes them where? Under his word. Because God's salvation, God's covenant is marked by a word. Actually, ten words. Actually, more than that, if you read Leviticus. But ten major words. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Stipulations of the covenant. Then, he promises that if they obey this covenant, they, they will receive an inheritance. And part of that inheritance is a promised land. The very promised land where Nehemiah is right now, writing Nehemiah 10. 
So 1400 BC, the promise. When they finally get to the promised land, they have to actually renew covenant again. And a very interesting thing happens. In the midst of renewing the covenant, God says to the people, I want you to come into this land and I want you to go to two mountains separated by a valley. One is called Mount Ebal, and one is called Mount Gerizim. Now stay with me. The reason I think this is important, because in our text this morning, it says that they took an oath. Do you see that there? They took an oath and a curse. It's in verse 29 of chapter 10. Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath. We've got to understand that curse and oath. It's very important. 1400 BC, they're in the land, and God says, I want, you, I want to assemble all my people. Okay, they're in this valley. Okay, I want half the 12 tribes of Israel to send their representatives up to Mount Ebal. Those representatives of the people are going to say, Amen, when I pronounce on you all the curses that will be yours if you break my covenant. Cursed are you if you don't honor your father and mother. Amen. Now, folks, there's probably two million people here observing this. Can you imagine the thunderous, amen. Cursed are you if you shed innocent blood. Amen. Now, I don't have time to go through all the curses, but they were exhaustive. And then I want you to take the other six representatives of the other six tribes and put them on Mount Gerizim. And they are going to say amen to all the blessings you will get if you obey my covenant. Blessed are you when you go out. Amen. Blessed are you when you come in. Amen. You will inherit the land and eat of its fruit. Amen. You will live forever. Amen. Here's the problem. The 1,000 years between all those amens on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal and the day that we're... We're studying right here at Nehemiah was a consistent cycle of Amen. Oh no. Amen. Oh no. Because Israel, God's people, would constantly break the covenant. They would intermarry with the pagan wives around them. They would serve the pagan gods around them. They would bow their knee to Baal. They would break the Sabbath. They would constantly break covenant. So you have this cycle of God makes his, his, his covenant of grace with his people, and they say amen, and then they break the covenant, and God righteously judges them, either using another nation, using a blight or famine or insects, whatever he's going to use to judge them. And then they come back to God and say, oh my. And then he renews covenant and they say, amen. And then they break covenant again and he judges them and they say, oh my. And they, so 1,000 years of that. Corey alluded to that last week. Here, here my friends, is a key point of that cycle because here the people are just coming back from one of those oh no's they're coming back from God's judgment of their covenant breaking that occurred in 586 BC about 150 years earlier when he when he he destroyed the city of Jerusalem the very city of God the temple the place where they met with God, and he took his people and he dispersed them into all the nations, primarily Babylon. 
And so the question that rose at that point is, is God faithful to his covenant promise to bless the nations through the seed of Abraham, a Jew? How can he do that if the Jewish people are dispersed and no more? If their temple is destroyed, they can't meet with God, and their city's walls are broken down. And for a 100 plus years, that question is hanging over everything. And it's like 444 BC, and will God be faithful? And what we're reading right now, folks, this is rich. Because this means that God is faithful. This means that no matter if his people continue to sin, God will continue to bring his people under his covenant mercy. He's still holy. He's still going to judge sin. But he's going to be faithful to his promise. And that's what's happening here. That is what's happening in this text. God's people, under God's covenant mercy, observe God's covenant obligation. God's people, under God's covenant mercy, observe God's covenant obligations. Why? So that God would be seen as faithful. So that God's name would shine forth to all the nations. That is why the people of God join together under the covenant of God. And this covenant renewal is what we are studying here. Notice, notice, notice what the people do immediately in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. So this is God's people under God's covenant mercy. They, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding. So anybody that's old enough to understand what's going on is saying, yes, we're going to do this. And then they take this curse and oath. You see that in verse 29? Join with their brothers, understanding their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and to do all the commandments of the Lord, our our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. Friends, here is where we see Jesus. Here, right here. Because God's people cannot fulfill God's law perfectly. They can't do it. They can't do it. And Jesus Christ is the only hope for that to happen. So that 400 years later, on Mount Calvary, God will unite Mount Ebal, all the curses, and Mount Gerizim, all the blessings, in one man, in one person. And Jesus will die on the cross to take the curse that you and I deserve and give us the blessing we do not deserve. Right here. See, that, that's why the first point of this message is God's people under God's covenant mercy. Oh, we're going to get to God's people observe God's covenant obligations. We must. The Bible does. We've got to get there. But oh, let's linger on the beauty of God. Let's linger on the grace of God. Let's linger on the power of God that in Jesus Christ, this oath 
this curse that they took is fulfilled. It points to Christ. He is our fulfillment. He is the one that will make this happen. This is our hope. God's people under God's covenant mercy. Now, what does it mean to fulfill or observe God's covenant obligations? Before we go there, let me just remind you of something. The New Testament clearly, clearly refers, I think, to this. Why do you say that? Well, when Nehemiah takes the, the covenant, and when he says, we've, we, we've come here to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our Lord and his rules and his statutes, doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus Christ when he gave his disciples the Great Commission? What did he say to them? He says, go, therefore, and make disciples, God's covenant people, under God's covenant mercies in the gospel, of all the nations, baptizing them, new sign of the new covenant, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this is one that we we often forget in the Great Commission. Teaching them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Do you hear it? God still requires that we take this covenant oath that we will walk in God's law and we will serve God and we will observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God. But now that oath is fulfilled in Christ. This speaks of the covenant of grace. The covenant that God makes with his people based on Christ's finished work, based on Christ's perfect life that is the the fulfillment of the covenant that we could never do perfectly, and then based on Christ's sacrificial death that takes the curse, cursed is Al for breaking these laws, and I do. But Jesus was cursed for us because the Bible says, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. God cursed him so that he might bless us. Doesn't that just delight you? Can you just look, can you look at our awesome God who thunders from Ebal and Gerizim, who thunders from Sinai so the people are afraid to even touch the mountain, who will one day judge sin and it will be a horrible and an awesome sight at the same time. But this God, this God deigns to to look down upon us. This sovereign king says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. I don't need you. You're going to break this covenant but I'm going to make a covenant with you and I'm going to be faithful to that covenant. Abraham, your seed is going to bless the nations. That's Christ. David, you're going to have a descendant that sits on the throne forever. How can that be, God? You promised David a descendant to sit on the throne forever and Judah is destroyed, sent into captivity. The city of David, Jerusalem, is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The walls are destroyed. And God says, yes, they are because you're unfaithful, but I'm faithful. So I'm going to fulfill my promise to David. I'm going to rebuild the temple. I'm going to rebuild the walls. And that descendant is going to be Jesus who will die to take your curse, who lived perfectly to give you his blessing. Oh, friends. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Having received his blessings, friends, let's go to the second point of this message. We now 
as God's people, under God's covenant mercy, we now observe God's covenant obligations. Please look with me at verse 30. There are three we will not statements in this text. I invite you to find them and note them and study them later. The first of the three is found in Nehemiah 10.30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. What is the first obligation of the covenant? Now, there are many. You understand that? But in this text, God chose to have Nehemiah highlight three. And the first one he highlights is this. Do not intermarry with the peoples of the land. Why? Because I believe the first covenant obligation is to worship God. Is to worship God. You see, the people of God had broken covenant with God because they'd intermarried with the pagans that were around them and then they had adopted their foreign gods. Do you not remember that Solomon himself was turned toward foreign gods through his many foreign wives? This is, a, this is a, a, a lifelong problem for Israel. In fact, we're going to encounter this problem later in this book. Nehemiah's going to have to address it yet again. Intermarriage was strictly forbidden because worship of God was mandated. The first three of the Ten Commandments are worship toward God commandments. Have you married a foreign wife in your heart? Have you, have you taken the affections of your heart and put it toward a foreign God in the new covenant? We call those idols, idols of the heart. I believe the scripture would speak to you. Secondly, the second we will not is found in verse 31. And if the peoples of the land, notice that phrase, peoples of the land, that's synonymous with the world those that are against God. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. The people of God broke covenant with God by violating the Sabbath. It was so convenient. In Israel, it's Saturday morning. Saturday morning market. Here come the Amorites. Here come the Philistines into Jerusalem. No wall, so they just walk right in. Selling their wares. You look out the door and say, man, I could use some money. And that's what they did. They violated the Sabbath because it was convenient and it was easy. Why is that important? Because the second obligation is that we are to image God to the people around us. You see, my friend, the Sabbath commandment was a key marker of Israel's identity compared with the surrounding groups of people who did not acknowledge Yahweh as their God. This included the Sabbath year. Did you know that there was a law that every seven years a farmer could not work his land? What kind of crazy person does that? A kind of crazy person that trusts God. And every seven years, you had to forgive debts. What? Yes. And as a matter of fact, remember, these guys weren't doing it. In Nehemiah 5, he had to rebuke them for not doing this. What kind of person forgives a debt after seven years? 
Someone who trusts God. Someone who says, I am marked by my God and the Sabbath is, in the Old Testament, one of these image-making marks. And they had violated it. So they had desecrated God. So they had ceased to be a unique people. Had you ceased to be a unique person? Have you so compromised with the world around you that you are indistinguishable from the world? There's no longer a Sabbath mark on your life. You, metaphorically speaking, conduct business on the Sabbath because it's easy, it's convenient. Hey, we got to make a buck. It can be in many other ways. Relationships, business, finances. Are there worldly attitudes, foreign ways of thinking that have erased God's unique mark on your life as a Christ bearer, a Christian? Oh, friend, this scripture calls us to be unique. And finally, the third we will not neglect is found in verse 39. Chapter 10, verse 39, please. The last sentence of verse 39 in chapter 10. We will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. God's, God's people, under, under God's covenant mercy, observe God's covenant obligations by worshiping Him. We will not intermarry. We're not going to entertain foreign gods. And if we have them in our hearts, we're going to aggressively go after them. They also image him. We, we, we will not violate the Sabbath. That is to say, we will not violate the unique marks of being a Christian. Meekness, kindness, humbleness, the fruits of the Spirit. And thirdly, we will not neglect the house of our God. Is God renewing covenant with you? How are you doing with caring for God's house? and serving God's house. Jump back up to verse 32, please. Verse 32 says, We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. That phrase, house of our God, is used seven times in verses 32 to 39. And then an eighth time, The the phrase, house of the Lord, is used. It's clear that in these last verses, the theme is, I am going to renew covenant, and you're going to be able to tell that I've renewed covenant because of God's grace. It's all by God's grace. It's not my work. I understand that. But what does repentance look like? It looks like not neglecting God's house. That's what Scripture tells me here. Now, what is God's house? Well, back then, God's house was the temple. Remember that it had been rebuilt? It had been rebuilt, I think, 40 years earlier. Somewhere along that line. Fairly recently. Since they came back from the exile in Babylon. But it wasn't functioning properly. People weren't giving to the service of the house of our God. And back then, that's the place where people met with God. This was the place where God would shine out to the foreign nations to to declare his gospel, his covenant of grace. It was a covenant of grace in the Old Testament. It wasn't fully developed like it, it would be in Christ. But the covenant of grace, the very sacrifices, that lamb that was slain every year, that was meant to point to Jesus. And so the temple was meant to be this beacon of light that is shining out 
the gospel and it's lying, abused, neglected. People aren't giving. What makes this relevant to us today is what Jesus said. He said, I am now the house of God. He said, you no longer meet with God there. And that, this temple was still in existence when Jesus showed up 400 years later. He says, you no longer meet there. In fact, you destroy this temple. I'll raise it up in three days. They thought he was talking about that temple and they called him crazy. No, he was talking about his body because he says, now you meet with God in me. And folks, the New Testament tells us that we are the body of Christ. So to apply this scripture accurately, this scripture tells me the Old Testament is valid for today, friends. Very valid for today. Paul said to Timothy, you know the scriptures, and he was talking about the Old Testament. This this application tells me, am I giving to the house of God? Or am I neglecting because of foreign wives in my life, mentally, spiritually, because of I've lost the marker of God's people. I'm violating the Sabbath because I don't have faith in God. You see, God's people provided financially for the service of God. Let's just roll through a few of these. These are wonderful. I, I invite you to study these. Look at verse 33. They're supposed to provide for the showbread. What's the showbread? Well, you can write this down, no time to go there. In Leviticus 24, 5 through 9, it says that the showbread are 12 loaves of bread that symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel, and they stand in the presence of God. They're called the bread of the presence. It's another way to call them. And new loaves had to be set out each Sabbath without exception. And you know what these these loaves of bread represented the covenant between the 12 tribes of Israel and God. You see, they were supposed to provide for all these things and it wasn't happening. People were not participating and were not serving the house of God. You see in the, in, in the second part of verse 33, you have all these, all these um, grain offering, regular burnt offering for the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel. I mean, they culminated in the sin offering. People were to serve the temple so that all these offerings could be made. Look at verse 34. This is a unique one. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have likewise cast lots for the wood offering. Wood offering? What's the wood offering? Well, think about it, friends. In Leviticus, it says that on the altar, there is to be a fire that burns perpetually, continually, never goes out. That fire symbolizing God's presence. God is with us. Like Jesus said in the Great Commission, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In addition, every day you have hundreds and hundreds of burnt offerings. How do you think they get burnt? Yeah, someone brings a lot of wood to the temple. Very mundane, isn't it? Sort of of the chores of God's house. And someone lights the fire. In Cuba, they cook with wood, and it becomes, it's like a charcoal-y wood. I've never seen it here. And, And so I'm familiar with this kind of wood. Without it, you can't cook. Without it, you can't do the burnt offerings. Look at verse 35. 
We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of our fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as, as, as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and oil so that the priests to the chambers of the house of our God to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all of our towns where we labor. They were to provide for the people who served the Lord in the temple. The first fruits is what the priests and the Levites ate because they, they couldn't be out working in the fields. It was an agrarian culture. They had to be in the temple working. So they, they lived off the tithes of the people. It's interesting. Uh, in verse 38, look at this. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. So apparently the Levites are receiving the tithes. They're going out into all the, the towns. People also came to the temple, but where people couldn't. And apparently a priest was there to supervise the Levite re- receiving the tithe. But then catch this, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. See, even those who are served by the tithes of the people, tithe from the tithes that they get from the people. Why? So that God can be all in all. Because God is the God who makes covenant with his people by grace. We're under God's covenant mercy. And then he says, you must now observe my covenant obligations. Why? Because ultimately, shining forth from this temple, shining forth from this temple, this temple is the glory of God in Christ. That is the summary, dear friends. The summary is that Jesus Christ is the house of God today. We are his body. He is where we meet with him. We are the place where his truth is proclaimed to this world. The Great Commission speaks of this. We're to observe all that he's commanded. And lo, he is with us always. Jesus unites Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim on the cross. He takes the curse for our disobedience. He gives us the blessing for his perfect obedience. Our God is faithful. Our God is merciful. He redeems us in his covenant mercies and in his faithfulness in Christ. And he empowers us, friends, this morning by his spirit to worship him to not intermarry, to image him, to not break the Sabbath, and to serve him, to not neglect the house of our God right here at Palm Vista Community Church, God's people under God's covenant mercy, observing God's covenant obligations so that his gospel will go forth. Oh, friends, let us pray. Worship team, please join me up front. Lord, my desire this morning is that my friends would see you, Jesus, the glory of God revealed on earth, the one to whom this temple, this house of God was pointing in 433 BC, the one to whom Mount Sinai and Moses and the covenant with Moses, the covenant of grace as it appeared in Moses was pointing in 1400 BC. The one, the one to whom David was pointing as you, you spoke through him these messianic prophetic words and, and the promise you gave him that you would, you would set his descendant on the throne forever in 1000 BC. The one who, who appeared, 
Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, thank you for sending the Son. Oh, Son, thank you for dying for our sins, for taking the curse that we deserve, that Ebal says we deserve, and giving us the blessing that only you could earn, that Garrison promises. Thank you for the blessings. Thank you for the call. We're under your covenant mercy, dear Father. And by your spirit now, reveal the beauty of this to my friends. Let the beauty of this covenant, the beauty of our Savior, the beauty of this passage, draw hearts that are cold, that have intermarried with the world and lost the light. Draw hearts that that have compromised with the world and and broken the Sabbath, metaphorically speaking, and, and no longer image you. Oh, draw the hearts that have grown weary in service lost the vision of a glorious God and have neglected your house. Oh, may we see you and your covenant of grace. Mercy, Lord. Please stand and sing with us. The beauty of your